This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton Section 3, Chapter 3a The Progressive it is now partly possible to justify the Shavian method of putting the explanations before the events. I can now give a fact or two, with a partial certainty at least, that the reader will give to the affairs of Bernard Shaw something of the same kind of significance which they have for Bernard Shaw himself. Thus, if I had simply said that Shaw was born in Dublin, the average reader might exclaim, Ah, yes, a wild Irishman, gay, emotional, and untrustworthy. The wrong note would be struck at the start. I have attempted to give some idea of what being born in Ireland meant to the man who was really born there. Now therefore, for the first time, I may be permitted to confess that Bernard Shaw was, like other men, born. He was born in Dublin on the 26th of July, 1856. Just as his birth can only be appreciated through some vision of Ireland, so his family can only be appreciated by some realization of the Puritan. He was the youngest son of one George Carr Shaw, who had been a civil servant and was afterwards a somewhat unsuccessful businessman. If I had merely said that his family was Protestant, which in Ireland means Puritan, it might have been passed over as a quite colorless detail. But if the reader will keep in mind what has been said about the degeneration of Calvinism into a few clumsy vetoes, he will see in its full and frightful significance such a sentence as this, which comes from Shaw himself. My father was in theory a vehement teetotaler, but in practice often a furtive drinker. The two things, of course, rest upon exactly the same philosophy, the philosophy of the taboo. There is a mystical substance, and it can give monstrous pleasures, or call down monstrous punishments. The dipsomaniac and the abstainer are not only both mistaken, but they both make the same mistake. They both regard information without any ethical preface. People would have begun at once to talk nonsense about artistic heredity and Celtic weakness, and would have gained the general impression that Bernard Shaw was an Irish wastrel and the child of Irish wastrels. Whereas it is the whole point of the matter that Bernard Shaw comes of a Puritan middle-class family of the most solid respectability, and the only admission of error arises from the fact that one member of that Puritan family took a particularly Puritan view of strong drink. That is, he regarded it generally as poison and sometimes as medicine, if only a mental medicine. But a poison and a medicine are very closely akin, as the nearest chemist knows, and they are chiefly akin in this, that no one will drink either of them for fun. Moreover, medicine and a poison are also alike in this, that no one will by preference drink either of them in public. And this medical or poisonous view of alcohol is not confined to the one Puritan 
to whose failure I have referred. It is spread all over the whole of our dying Puritan civilization. For instance, social reformers have fired a hundred shots against the public house, but never one against its really shameful feature. The sign of decay is not in the public house, but in the private bar, or rather the row of five or six private bars, into each of which a respectable dipsomaniac can go in solitude, and by indulging his own half-witted sin, violate his own half-witted morality. Nearly all these places are equipped with an atrocious apparatus of ground-glass windows, which can be so closed that they practically conceal the face of the buyer from the seller. Words cannot express the abyss of human infamy and hateful shame expressed by that elaborate piece of furniture. Whenever I go into a public house, which happens fairly often, I always carefully open all these apertures, and then leave the place in every way refreshed. In other ways also it is necessary to insist, not only on the fact of an extreme Protestantism, but on that of the Protestantism of a garrison, a world where that religious force both grew and festered all the more for being at once isolated and protected. All the influences surrounding Bernard Shaw in boyhood were not only Puritan, but such that no non-Puritan force could possibly pierce or counteract. He belonged to that Irish group which, according to Catholicism, has hardened its heart which, according to Protestantism, has hardened its head, but which, as I fancy, has chiefly hardened its hide, lost its sensibility to the contact of the things around it. In reading about his youth, one forgets that it was passed in the island, which is still one flame before the altar of St. Peter and St. Patrick. The whole thing might be happening in Wimbledon. He went to the Wesleyan Connectual School. He went to hear Moody and Sankey. I was, he writes, wholly unmoved by their eloquence, and felt bound to inform the public that I was, on the whole, an atheist. My letter was solemnly printed in public opinion, to the extreme horror of my numerous aunts and uncles. That is the philosophical atmosphere. Those are the religious postulates. It could never cross the mind of a man of the garrison that before becoming an atheist he might stroll into one of the churches of his own country and learn something of the philosophy that had satisfied Dante and Bossu, Pascal and Descartes. In the same way, I have to appeal to my theoretic preface at this third point of the drama of Shaw's career. On leaving school, he stepped into a secure business position, which he held steadily for four years, and which he flung away almost in one day. He rushed even recklessly to London, where he was quite unsuccessful and practically starved for six years. If I had mentioned this act on the first page of this book, it would have seemed to have either the simplicity of a mere fanatic, or else to cover some ugly escapade of youth, or some quite criminal looseness of temperament. But Bernard Shaw did not act thus, because he was careless, but because he was ferociously careful, careful especially of the one thing needful. What was he thinking about when he threw away his last halfpence and went to a strange place? What was he thinking about when he endured hunger and smallpox in London almost without hope? He was thinking of what he has ever since thought of, 
the slow but sure surge of the social revolution. You must read into all those bald sentences and empty years what I shall attempt to sketch in the third section. You must read the revolutionary movement of the later nineteenth century, darkened indeed by materialism and made mutable by fear and free thought, but full of awful vistas of an escape from the curse of Adam. Bernard Shaw happened to be born in an epoch, or rather at the end of an epoch which was in its way unique in the ages of history. The nineteenth century was not unique in the success or rapidity of its reforms, or in their ultimate cessation, but it was unique in the peculiar character of the failure which followed the success. The French Revolution was an enormous act of human realization. It has altered the terms of every law and the shape of every town in Europe, but it was by no means the only example of a strong and swift period of reform. What was really peculiar about the Republican energy was this, that it left behind it not an ordinary reaction, but a kind of dreary, drawn-out, and utterly unmeaning hope. The strong and evident idea of reform sank lower and lower until it became the timid and feeble idea of progress. Towards the end of the nineteenth century there appeared its two incredible figures. They were the pure conservative and the pure progressive, two figures which would have been overwhelmed with laughter by any other intellectual commonwealth of history. There was hardly a human generation which could not have seen the folly of merely going forward or merely standing still, of mere progressing or mere conserving. In the coarsest Greek comedy, we might have a joke about a man who wanted to keep what he had, whether it was yellow gold or yellow fever. In the dullest medieval morality, we might have a joke about a progressive gentleman who, having passed heaven and come to purgatory, decided to go further, and fare worse. The twelfth and thirteenth centuries were an age of quite impetuous progress. Men made in one rush roads, trades, synthetic philosophies, parliaments, universities, settlements, a law that could cover the world, and such spires as had never struck the sky. But they would not have said that they wanted progress, but that they wanted the road, the parliaments, and the spires. In the same way, the time from Richelieu to the Revolution was upon the whole a time of conservation, often of harsh and hideous conservation. It preserved tortures, legal quibbles, and despotism. But if you had asked the rulers, they would not have said that they wanted conservation, but that they wanted the torture and the despotism. The old reformers and the old despots alike desired definite things, powers, licenses, payments, vetoes, and permissions. Only the modern progressive and the modern conservative would have been content with two words. Other periods of active improvement have died by stiffening at last into some routine. Thus the Gothic gaiety of the 13th century, stiffening into the mere Gothic ugliness of the 15th. Thus the mighty wave of the Renaissance, whose crest was lifted to heaven, was touched by a wintry witchery of classicism, and frozen forever before it fell. Alone of all such movements, the democratic movement of the last two centuries has not frozen, but loosened and liquefied. Instead of becoming more pedantic in its old age, it has grown more bewildered, 
by the analogy of healthy history we ought to have gone on worshipping the republic and calling each other citizen with increasing seriousness until some other part of the truth broke into our republican temple but in fact we have turned the freedom of democracy into a mere scepticism destructive of everything including democracy itself it is none the less destructive because it is so to speak an optimistic scepticism or as i have said a dreary hope it was none the better because the destroyers were always talking about the new vistas and enlightenments which their new negations opened to us the republican temple like any other strong building rested on certain definite limits and supports but the modern man inside it went on indefinitely knocking holes in his own house and saying that they were windows the result is not hard to calculate the moral world was pretty well all windows and no house by the time that bernard shaw arrived on the scene then there entered into full swing that great game of which he soon became the greatest master a progressive or advanced person was now to mean not a man who wanted democracy but a man who wanted something newer than democracy a reformer was to be not a man who wanted a parliament or a republic but a man who wanted anything that he hadn't got the emancipated man must cast a weird and suspicious eye round him at all the institutions of the world wondering which of them was destined to die in the next few centuries each one of them was whispering to himself what can i alter this quite vague and very discontent probably did lead to the revelation of many incidental wrongs and to much humane hard work in certain holes and corners it also gave birth to a great deal of quite futile and frantic speculation which seemed destined to take away babies from women or to give votes to tomcats but it had an evil in it much deeper and more psychologically poisonous than any superficial absurdities there was in this thirst to be progressive a subtle sort of double-mindedness and falsity a man was so eager to be in advance of his age that he pretended to be in advance of himself institutions that his wholesome nature and habit fully accepted he had to sneer at as old-fashioned out of a servile and snobbish fear of the future out of the primal forests through all the real progress of history man had picked his way obeying his human instinct or in the excellent phrase following his nose but now he was trying by violent athletic exertions to get in front of his nose into this riot of all imaginary innovations shaw brought the sharp edge of the irishman and the concentration of the puritan and thoroughly thrashed all competitors in the difficult art of being at once modern and intelligent in twenty two-penny controversies he took the revolutionary side i fear in most cases because it was called revolutionary but the other revolutionists were abruptly startled by the presentation of quite rational and ingenious arguments on their own side the dreary thing about most new causes is that they are praised in such very old terms every new religion bores us with the same stale rhetoric about closer fellowship and the higher life no one ever approximately equaled bernard shaw 
in the power of finding really fresh and personal arguments for these recent schemes and creeds. No one ever came within a mile of him in the knack of actually producing a new argument for a new philosophy. I give two instances to cover the kind of thing I mean. Bernard Shaw, being honestly eager to put himself on the modern side in everything, put himself on the side of what is called the feminist movement, the proposal to give the two sexes not merely equal social privileges, but identical. To this it is often answered that women cannot be soldiers, and to this again the sensible feminist answer that women run their own kind of physical risk, while the silly feminist answer that war is an outgrown barbaric thing which women would abolish. But Bernard Shaw took the line of saying that women had been soldiers in all occasions of natural and unofficial war, as in the French Revolution. That has the great fighting value of being an unexpected argument. It takes the other pugilist's breath away for one important instant. To take the other case, Mr. Shaw has found himself led by the same mad imp of modernity on the side of the people who want to have phonetic spelling. The people who want phonetic spelling generally depress the world with tireless and tasteless explanations of how much easier it would be for children or foreign bagmen if height were spelled H-I-T-E. Now children would curse spelling whatever it was, and we are not going to permit foreign bagmen to improve Shakespeare. Bernard Shaw charged along quite a different line. He urged that Shakespeare himself believed in phonetic spelling, since he spelt his own name in six different ways. According to Shaw, phonetic spelling is merely a return to the freedom and flexibility of Elizabethan literature. That, again, is exactly the kind of blow the old speller does not expect. As a matter of fact, there is an answer to both the ingenuities I have quoted. When women have fought in revolutions, they have generally shown that it was not natural to them by their hysterical cruelty and insolence. It was the men who fought in the revolution. It was the women who tortured the prisoners and mutilated the dead. And because Shakespeare could sing better than he could spell, it does not follow that his spelling and ours ought to be abruptly altered by a race that has lost all instinct for singing. But I do not wish to discuss these points. I only quote them as examples of the startling ability which really brought Shaw to the front ability to brighten even our modern movements with original and suggestive thoughts. But while Bernard Shaw pleasantly surprised innumerable cranks and revolutionists by finding quite rational arguments for them, he surprised them unpleasantly also by discovering something else. He discovered a turn of argument or trick of thought which has ever since been the plague of their lives and given him in all assemblies of their kind, in the Fabian society or in the whole socialist movement, a fantastic but most formidable domination. This method may be approximately defined as that of revolutionizing the revolutionists by turning their rationalism against their remaining sentimentalism. But definition leaves the matter dark unless we give one or two examples. Thus Bernard Shaw threw himself as thoroughly as any new woman into the cause of the emancipation of women. But while the new woman praised woman as a prophetess, the new man took the opportunity to curse her and kick her as a comrade. 
For the others, sexual equality meant the emancipation of women, which allowed them to be equal to men. For Shaw, it mainly meant the emancipation of men, which allowed them to be rude to women. Indeed, almost every one of Bernard Shaw's earlier plays might be called an argument between a man and a woman, in which the woman is thumped and thrashed and outwitted until she admits that she is the equal of her conqueror. This is the first case of the Shavian trick of turning on the romantic rationalists with their own rationalism. He said in substance, If we are Democrats, let us have votes for women. But if we are Democrats, why on earth should we have respect for women? I take another example out of many. Bernard Shaw was thrown early into what may be called the cosmopolitan club of revolution. The socialists of the SDF call it La Internationale, but the club covers more than socialists. It covers many who consider themselves the champions of oppressed nationalities, Poland, Finland, and even Ireland, and thus a strong nationalist tendency exists in the revolutionary movement. Against this nationalist tendency, Shaw set himself with sudden violence, if the flag of England was a piece of piratical humbug, was not the flag of Poland a piece of piratical humbug too? If we hated the jingoism of the existing armies and frontiers, why should we bring into existence new jingo armies and new jingo frontiers? All the other revolutionists fell in instinctively with home rule for Ireland. Shaw urged in effect that home rule was as bad as home influences and home cooking and all the other degrading domesticities that began with the word home. His ultimate support of the South African War was largely created by his irritation against the other revolutionists for favoring a nationalist resistance. The ordinary imperialists objected to pro-Boers because they were anti-patriots. Bernard Shaw objected to pro-Boers because they were pro-patriots. But among these surprise attacks of GBS, these turnings of skepticism against the skeptics, there was one which has figured largely in his life, the most amusing and perhaps the most salutary of all these reactions. The progressive world, being in revolt against religion, had naturally felt itself allied to science, and against the authority of priests it would perpetually hurl the authority of scientific men. Shaw gazed for a few moments at this new authority, the veiled god of Huxley and Tyndall, and then with the greatest placidity and precision kicked it in the stomach. He declared to the astounded progressives around him that physical science was a mystical fake like sacerdotalism, that scientists, like priests, spoke with authority because they could not speak with proof or reason, that the very wonders of science were mostly lies, like the wonders of religion. When astronomers tell me, he says somewhere, that a star is so far off that its light takes a thousand years to reach us, the magnitude of the lie seems to me inartistic. The paralyzing impudence of such remarks left every one quite breathless, and even to this day this particular part of Shaw's satiric war has been far less followed up than it deserves. For there was present in it an element very marked in Shaw's controversies. I mean that his apparent exaggerations are generally much better backed up by knowledge than would appear from their nature. 
He can lure his enemy on with fantasies and then overwhelm him with facts. Thus the man of science, when he read some wild passage in which Shaw compared Huxley to a tribal soothsayer grubbing in the entrails of animals, supposed the writer to be a mere fantastic whom science could crush with one finger. He would therefore engage in a controversy with Shaw about, let us say, vivisection, and discover to his horror that Shaw really knew a great deal about the subject and could pelt him with expert witnesses and hospital reports. Among the many singular contradictions in a singular character, there is none more interesting than this combination of exactitude and industry in the detail of opinions with audacity and a certain wildness in their outline. End of section 3, chapter 3a. Three